Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all you who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the living God, and we say thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, living Lord, we pray that by the Holy Spirit, the word, the inscripturated word, the very breath of God might be our food. That you might convict and comfort our souls at the same time. Perhaps convert any who are here who know not the Christ by faith. We pray that we may receive this word and walk away from it by your grace, seeking to live it out in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. We find ourselves this morning at the end of another wonderful book of Holy Scripture. We have journeyed for months through 1 Peter. There are many places that we could go in this letter, perhaps to summarize the truths that we have seen. But as providence would have it, let me read to you one verse, which is an apt summary of this entire letter. It's verse 10 of 1 Peter 5. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while. Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. This entire letter, these five chapters, have been, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter's call to undergo trials and sufferings well. To live as an exile and a pilgrim well. You recall, you can turn there if you want, in chapter 1, Peter begins the discussion by calling believers pilgrims. Some translations say exiles, strangers. But how is it that we as Christians are exiles? Well, just like the old covenant people, we have been removed, as it were, from a land that looks like ours. And yet our removal is not because of sin. We await the day when we shall be taken to that promised land. But we live in a world of Babylon, as it were, a world that is so different than the call of Christ. A world in which we need to learn how to suffer well for the cause of Christ. We need to learn how to live lives of humble submission to authorities, even when things are difficult. 
Do you recall the theme of suffering, of calling, and of grace flood these five chapters? Peter finishes this call with one more reminder to something, and that is the word watch. Watching is crucial when you are suffering and under attack. We just sang these words from Psalm 121. From all that is evil, the Lord keeps you. Your life, he will surely keep safe. This is the reality of every believer. We are living in a world in which we will do battle. And yet God smiles upon all who are his in Christ. Let me commend to you perhaps a two-part outline for our journey Our last journey this morning in 1 Peter. The first thing that we will see is that we are called to be watching as we wait. Watching as we wait. But then there's a second reminder for us as we watch, and that is that we are living under the smile of the King. So on the one hand, we are watching. Watching as we wait. It's like we are on the wall. Soldiers in the midst of a battle, watching, being vigilant, being sober, and yet at the selfsame time, we live under the smile of King Jesus. Let's see these two realities. Look what Peter says. Having commended to elders the call to shepherd the flock, having encouraged a humble submission of all of Christ's people, he says in verse 8, be sober. Be sober. This is the same word that he uses in chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 7. Sober-mindedness. An awareness of what is around you. Being watchful. And notice he says this, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. There's a connection here between vigilance, watchfulness, because the end is near. Now, I don't know if you think about this when you think about the reality of the doctrines of Scripture. If we spend time at all thinking about the return of Christ or the so-called end times, it's usually to debate with our brothers and sisters when the return will be and when the millennium will be. But the Scripture doesn't do it that way. In 1 Peter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Timothy 4, and other places, there is a continual call to vigilance as we wait for the day that is to come. And the return of Christ is a theme that is everywhere in 1 Peter. Elders are reminded that that day is coming. Spouses are reminded that that day is coming. Christians are reminded as they are tested that that day is coming. This is a reality. We don't just believe that Christ came and died, was buried and was raised and ascended. We also confess that he's coming again. And that shapes everything. It does for Peter. This connection to sober-mindedness and vigilance is often occurring in the scriptures. The reality that the end is near. But note the reason that Peter says we are to be sober. We are to be vigilant. Boys and girls, that word vigilant means to watch. 
You ever been walking down a trail in the woods or walking down a road and it's unfamiliar to you and so you're watching around, are there cars coming? Are there animals that could hurt me on the trail? You're, you're vigilant, you're watching. Spiritually, that's what Peter has in mind. We're vigilant because we do have an adversary, an enemy. There's a bad guy, boys and girls, and it's Satan. Notice what he says. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, Peter's not the first person to point us to this theme, is he? Let's just rehearse a little bit of the biblical story of Satan. There Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were given a covenant promise by God. Obey and enter into glory. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan enters the garden, that early pre-fall temple of God, and whispers into the ear of the woman, And in the earshot of the man who was standing there with her, did God really say? It's been our problem for thousands of years. Did God really say? You see, there's a roar there, but it comes by way of whisper. We could trace the work of Satan as it is promised in Genesis 3, That the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so what do we see throughout most of the Old Testament? Maybe you're new to the Bible. If you're trying to think about, well, I know Genesis is about creation. And I know when we get to Matthew in the New Testament, we start to talk about Jesus. But all those other stories, what are they about? Well, they're about getting us to Jesus, quite frankly. But part of that story is a war between the seed of those who are of the promise and the seed of the enemy. One brother follows the promise. One brother rejects it. Many in the world reject the preaching of God, and one man and a few family members do not and enter into the ark. Many kings are faithful, but many more are unfaithful. Warring nations seek to come and crush the old covenant people of God. There is a war. Then we read the story of a man named Job, don't we? His story actually probably happened historically much earlier in the Old Testament. But there we see the sons of God, the angels created by God, coming to present themselves to the living God. I don't want to preach a sermon on Job, but never forget that every angel, good or fallen, must present himself before the face of God. Their power is nothing. There is an evil angel who comes and says, Job is only serving you, God, because you've blessed him. There's this discussion. God even says, have you considered my servant Job? And there is an accusation by Satan of God, and there's also an accusation of Job to God by Satan. Satan is the accuser. In chapter 2, Satan enters into the words of Job's wife. Look at what you've suffered. 
And Job's wife ends up saying in Job chapter 2, similar words to Satan. It is possible for human beings, as we will see, to be the voice, as it were, of Satan. Curse God and die. Do, Job, what unbeknownst to you, Satan said you would do. Job remains faithful. Then we see much later in the biblical narrative in Zechariah 3, verses 1 and 2. Our brother Blake preached a sermon series through Zechariah many months ago, and I commend this sermon to you. But there you will remember that there is an accuser and there's a high priest. And the voice, the angel of the Lord, silencing the accusations of the enemy, the accuser comes. But we also read in the final book of Scripture in Revelation 12, verse 10 and following the reality that all throughout the age of the church, all throughout the age, quite frankly, of God's covenant work, Old Testament and New Testament alike, Satan has been bent on the destruction of the Messiah and his people. And we need to do that survey because when Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, most of us don't think he actually roars. But he does. Not with his mouth, but with his actions. And in the context of 1 Peter, biblical commentator Thomas Schreiner reminds us, quote, persecution is the roar by which he tries to intimidate believers. In the hope that they will capitulate, give in to, at the prospect of suffering. Peter has talked a lot about persecution and trials. He's reminding us at the end of the letter, before he signs off with that benediction, peace be to you. He reminds us, you need to be vigilant. You need to be sober minded. You need to watch. Watch as you wait. Now, isn't it interesting? I love what to me seems like biblical irony. Of all the disciples to be used of God to say, watch out for Satan. Who is it that pens this letter? Peter. Do you remember, boys and girls, anything about Peter and Satan in the Bible? Well, it's interesting. If you remember the story in Mark chapter 8, verse 33, it's Peter who essentially tries to go to the Lord and say, don't say that you're going to die. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Peter, your voice, as it were, is the voice of Satan right now because you are opposing the very plan of God. Now, that doesn't mean, boys and girls, that Peter wasn't a true believer of Christ. But it's Peter who knows. It's Peter who knows the pull of this roaring lion whispering in his ear. Of course, later we're reminded in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus saying to Peter, Satan has demanded that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, Jesus says. Peter knows the need to watch out for Satan. 
So we're watching as we wait. We're waiting for the return of Christ, for that great day when the kingdom will be made known for our eyes, when Christ will separate the sheep from the goats, when all will be made known and the glory of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be seen in blazing supremacy. But we're watching as we wait. Now, when Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about, what does that mean for us? We've seen and we've heard this morning some stories of what Satan has done. But what does it mean to be on guard against the enemy and against his hosts? Well, quickly, let me just give you perhaps five different ways in the Bible that we see Satan at work. And consider that we, as we watch for our adversary, we endeavor to be mindful of these things. Number one, Satan attacks the church. This is the main context of 1 Peter. You will be persecuted. The enemy who hates God and hates those that God has saved will be on the attack. This is the theme of Revelation 12. Where the enemy, the dragon of old, attacks the church. We need to be on guard against the attacks that the church will go through. Persecution from without. Sometimes persecution from within. This is the work of Satan. Yes, it is the work of sinful men, but it's also the work of Satan. Secondly, think about Satan and be on guard against the lies of the enemy. Genesis chapter 2. Did God really say... How often, friend, have you been tempted with the question? I know the word says, but. Just a rewording of Satan's voice in Genesis 2. Did God really say? Be on guard against the attack of the church through persecution, through schism. Be on guard against the attack of Satan and the lies. You remember that Ephesians chapter 2 says that all of us are born into sin and that we live as sons under the sway of the devil. Part of the glorious good news is that we've been freed from slavery to sin and Satan. But we still need to be on guard against the lies which contradict the word of God. So Satan attacks the church. Satan propagates lies. Thirdly, we see Satan often in charge of false teaching and blindness in the world. False teaching and blindness in the world. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Listen to what John says in 1 John 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world is under Satan's domain. They are blinded. We have been free from that blindness, and yet sometimes we temporarily return to it. We deny the Word of God. We deny the law of God as a rule for how to glorify God. We embrace various kinds of false teachings and false philosophies. Or how about 2 Corinthians 4? 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. There the Word of God says this. 
But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. Satan is involved in the false teaching and blindness of the lost, and sometimes, temporarily, the false teaching and blindness of even true believers. But you know, fourthly, Satan is even the accuser. We saw that. We won't rehearse all of it. But Zechariah 3 is a wonderful example. Satan comes, as it were, pretending to care about justice and holiness. Satan, slithering around, will often whisper in our ears, there's sin left unatoned for, you know. You really have no hope of resting in Christ alone. You must work, for you have been Deeply sinful. Did Christ really say you could come to him? I know that Jesus said he will receive any who come to him, but not you. What warrant do you have to think that Jesus is talking to you when he says, I care for you? Satan's accusations come in the form of anxiety, come in the form of doubt and discouragement. And the interesting thing is, in our own fallenness, we don't need much help to fall into those things. But all throughout the pages of Scripture, the enemy has been the accuser. So we regularly need to remember the truths of God's Word. We'll get there in a moment, but how are we to defend ourselves against the enemy? Well, Peter says it in verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith. That's your weapon of warfare. Well, brothers and sisters, quickly, there's a fifth way that I think we could see Satan at work, and that is the opposing of the gospel. The opposing of the gospel. Again, the example of Peter. Mark chapter 8. Which is a good reminder for us, there are times when even in well-meaning ways, we sometimes end up voicing the words of the enemy. Not as though Satan possesses us and speaks through us. There are times where if we are not in line with the word of God, we can subtly oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ and very much be one of his disciples. Satan hates the gospel. And he will oppose it. Where do you see the spiritual realm at work? Well, just drive down Todd's lane. You don't have to go to the pride festivals that are happening downtown. There's plenty of satanic influence before you even get there. Churches who have left their first love. Cults and false religions and homes that on this day, which belongs to the Lord, the Lord who offers them salvation in the gospel, homes who say there is no God and there is no Christ. This lostness is often stirred up by the enemy who hates the gospel. We could talk all day about what the scripture says about Satan, but when Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, we shouldn't just read over those words and say, okay, yeah, I remember, bad, bad demons. No, 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 there is a wealth of information 
Reminding us that we do have an enemy. That we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But what are we to do, preacher? How are we to stand on the wall and be vigilant in the fight? Peter tells us, verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith. Being steadfast in the faith is the means. Our warfare against the enemy is standing firm in our faith. Again, listen to the Apostle John, 1 John 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who can forget Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. This one might be beneficial for you to turn to. Hebrews 2. Listen to how Jesus is described. We could spend a year in Hebrews 2. Glorying in the Son of God. But listen to this. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. I don't, I don't want to be too exaggerative here, but the grave of every believer is a monument to the end of Satan. And he knows it. Christ has conquered sin and death. Satan only has empty words now, but he wields them very, very well. We must stand firm in our faith. Don't give in to the thought that when you are tested, when you are persecuted, that God has abandoned you. That you should walk away from the faith. Stand firm in it, Peter would say. Remembering, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 16.20, that Christ Jesus will soon crush Satan under our feet. So we are, as it were, to use a military illustration, we're to hold the line. When... The bullets and arrows of the enemy come our way. Return fire with the sword of God's word. Remind yourself, as you see even those around you wounded and even falling, that Christ's word is sure. Hold the line of faith. Don't give up. Don't be tempted to say it's not true. Ephesians 4, 27, James 4, 7. Resist the enemy, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And notice what he says before we move to our second point. He says this. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You're not alone or unique in your sufferings, in your persecutions, but in your trials. This is the lot, as it were, for all of Christ's people. 
First Peter, perhaps, is a wonderful book at all times, but in our time to be studying. Because if trends continue, brothers and sisters, there may be increased need for us to be reminded to stand firm in the face of persecution. We are not promised that civil governments will give us liberty forever. Praise the Lord, as our brother prayed, that there was a reprieve, as it were, this past week. But we know, we know, don't we? As our brother prayed as well, we know that our hope doesn't rest with the governments of men. But in saying that, we must be ready. Persecution will come. But hold the line. Hold the line. All Christians are suffering, and perhaps in the immediate context, Peter has in mind other believers in other parts of Asia Minor who are suffering persecution. For us, some 2,000 years later, we need to be reminded that our sufferings for the name of Christ, they're not unique. So we are, as Peter says, to be watching as we wait. But then he gives us a second truth, and that is that we are living under the smile of the king. Now, what do I mean by smile of the king? Boys and girls, how many times have you wanted mommy or daddy or grandmommy and granddaddy to watch you do something? Let me show you, mommy, I just learned to ride my bike. Let me show you, daddy, how many times I can do this jumping jack. And sometimes what you're looking for is that they smile as they watch you. Because you know that that means that they care about you. That they're watching you. There's a reminder here at the end of this wonderful book. We as Christians are living under the smile of the king. Look what Peter says, verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus... After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. If you consider all of the benedictions of Scripture, very few of them actually involve a statement that sounds negative. Here's the benediction. May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus and all of God's people say amen there, right? But then notice the next part of the benediction. After you have suffered a while. What now, Peter? Well, after you have suffered a while, may this God who called you perfect you, establish you, strengthen you, and settle you. Four different words that all kind of mean the same thing. This is living under the smile of the king. We suffer, we hurt, we go through trials, and yet... There is God's blessing upon us. Quickly, this benediction or statement of blessing. He says, the God of all grace. God's grace is everywhere in this letter. The grace that comes to us through Christ Jesus. But notice what he says. May the God of all grace, not some grace, but all grace, who called us to his eternal glory. I don't know if you're you're picking up on it. And maybe you won't unless you've walked through this entire series. These couple of verses pull together all the themes of the letter. Suffering, election or calling, God's grace. Living in a world where there are difficulties. 
Peter began with that word called. Chapter 1, verse 15. He uses that word in multiple places. Chapter 2, verse 9, verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 9. It is God who calls us. God who calls us to salvation. I wish we could linger here, but just just to be clear. If you go to chapter 1, Peter says that we are, in verse 2, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. You need to understand that the way that the scripture lays out the movement of history and reality is that after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, all of us fell into sin. And we didn't just fall into some bad things. We lost spiritual life. We were dead, Ephesians chapter 2. So the gospel is not Jesus doing the work and then coming to you and saying, here's an opportunity. Use what strength you have to muster up the ability to get it. No, 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 no. You're dead. You have no ears. You have no spiritual heartbeat. And the Holy Spirit of God comes to you and breathes spiritual life, as it were, into you. Regenerates you. Causes you to be born again. And out of that, you hear the gospel for... Perhaps the 10,000th time, and for whatever reason, this time it is clear, yes, I'm a sinner. I've heard this story for thousands of sermons, but today I hear it, and it's crystal clear. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And outwardly, the minister, or the gospel track, or the Sunday school teacher, or the friend over coffee is talking about Jesus. And you hear it, and you say, yes, He is the Savior. He is the Savior. And you hear in the words of that gospel proclamation that he will receive you. And you actually say yes. But your saying yes is not because you had strength or life in you. It is because God internally called you. And this calling is in keeping with his electing grace. Some say this is unfair. I say, no one would actually come to Christ if God didn't cause them to be born again first. Calling God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. This is the good news. That salvation from sin and from judgment comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's crystal clear throughout all of this text. Other places, Peter is even more explicit about how the blood of Christ, the Christ's work, is the foundation for our salvation. And we seek all manners of identities because deep down in our souls we know that we are lacking. You ever wonder why every single human being, if they're honest, is insecure? Because they're born into a world under a covenant of works that they have broken. And they live even without the conscious recollection of it before the face of their creator as one who is a rebel. But God in Christ offers eternal life, reconciliation. 
And it's by Christ alone that we receive this forgiveness. Have you come to Christ? You know, I'm aware that it's possible that some in this room have sat under sermons in churches for decades. And you've gotten so used to the idea that church is going to involve some singing and some praying and perhaps even some emotion and religious feelings. And it's kind of a good thing and that Jesus died for sinners. But did Jesus die for you? Have you come to see that you are a sinner and that Christ, who is preached to you every week, is offered to you? Have you responded in repentance of sin and faith? The call of the gospel is not simply to believe that there is a God and that there is a Jesus who died for sins. It is the call to fall on your face before that Christ who says that he will save you. Have you trusted Christ? All those who have trusted Christ live under the smile of the king. They live under this benediction that after you have suffered a while, he will perfect you and establish you and strengthen you and settle you. And it's all by Christ Jesus. And remember, the last words before our text where Peter saying, God cares for you. The enemy, perhaps, would love to be speaking to many of you. Who doesn't care for you? Do you trust Christ? Is he your savior? If he is, Don't ever, don't ever release these words. Don't let Satan have them in your mind. He cares for me. Be gone, Satan. I don't need your flimsy words. I have a Savior who spread his arms wide and bled for me. As it were, be like Martin Luther, who would get into the face of Satan. And with bold gospel declarations, say, Satan, I'm actually worse than you say I am. But I have a Savior who bled and died for me. Be gone. I live under the smile and benediction, the blessing of a king. Well, Peter finishes his letter. And he tells us some things. Look what he says. Even in finishing the letter, you know, we've said this before. In our culture, we start letters with dear so-and-so, and we end letters sometimes in Christianese, in him, grace and peace, those kinds of things. Or if it's not, you know, a, a, a Christian brother or sister that we're writing to, we'll say respectfully submitted or whatever it is. V-R, right? all of these things. Not in the New Testament. Peter now tells us some things about assistance that he's had with this letter. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. Silvanus, most think, was Silas. Can't prove that to you from this particular text, but you put all the pages of Scripture together and various kinds of translations, and many scholars believe that this was Silas, the traveling companion with Paul and Acts. It may not be, it may indeed not be Silas, but someone else. But notice, even in saying that, the theme of grace. 
By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Thank you, Sylvanus, for your pen. 13. She who is in Babylon, elect, you know, you can't get away from God's electing grace if you're going to read 1 Peter. It's everywhere, even in the last verses. Elect together with you. She, whoever she is, greets you, and so does Mark. Now, we've seen Mark before. Quickly. Who is this woman in Babylon? Well, it's possible that she's a literal woman, meaning there is one particular woman that he has in mind. She, who is a believer, she's elect with you, readers, she greets you. But oftentimes, she in the scripture is a reference, a figure for the church or a church. I think that's probably the best way to take that. She, the bride of Christ, the local church who is in Babylon, together with you, greets you. And so does Mark. Now, what is Babylon? Well, at the time of Peter's writing, Babylon was a crushed city that laid in ruins in Persia. Well, it's possible that Peter has in mind a particular church in that region. But many believe that because it's clear in other parts of Scripture that Babylon is now used as a picture, a symbol for Rome, Peter is saying the church in Rome, elect together with you, greets you. And so does Mark. Can't prove that, but but that seems very likely when you put all of Scripture together. That Peter and Mark are, and, and excuse me, Peter and John together are both using Babylon as a picture for Rome. But notice, however you take it, this idea of churches greeting each other. The church in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. And so does Mark, my son. I've told you before that I'll often be traveling in other parts of the world. And believers there will tell me things like, greet your church for us. And the first few times I heard that, I thought it sounded strange. If I remember, when I go home, I'll tell my church that you said hello. (laughs) They're just being more biblical than I was in those moments. It's a biblical pattern. And on many of the letters... The such-and-such church greets the such-and-such church. It's as if they're saying, hey, we're family. We're in the body of Christ. Do what the New Testament churches did. Send greetings for us to your church. Not just you. Glad you came. But send greetings to your church. Brothers, do you realize right now? Sisters, do you realize right now how many local churches there are all over this world? And we will not be able to examine them all in this lifetime. But if each of us today were to travel to a different part of the globe, we could find saints worshiping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We could greet them on behalf of this local church. We ought to revive that practice in the West. Greeting churches. Saying hello. I bring you greetings from Grace Baptist Chapel in Hampton, Virginia. Now, not all of them know that today I'm here with you, but I bring you greetings. I come from them. I stand with them as Christ stands in our midst, in our region, 
And here, separated from them today, I am with you and I greet you in their name. We are with you because you are in Christ. Well, Mark is clearly, it seems, John Mark. Perhaps the gospel writer of Mark, writing from the information that he received from Peter, and Peter closes, greet one another with a kiss of love. This is a common greeting in the first century, and perhaps a common greeting as the churches gathered together. We may tweak that a little bit into a hug or handshake. But greet one another. Then the final words. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So Peter says, watch as you wait. And don't forget that you live under the smile of the king. And after you have suffered for a little while, he will perfect you, establish you, strengthen you. And he will take what is unsettled and settle you. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that you might encourage our souls to be watchful as we wait, to remember the benediction of King Jesus the smile that is upon us because we are in him. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.